Today's patch passage is Matthew 18, 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't we begin by giving Micah a round of applause for reading scripture this morning. <clears throat> and uh, Micah, I just hope you know we are so thankful you're a part of this church. Um, we're a better church, and I say this to all the children that are here, we're a better church because you're here with us. So thank you so much for serving your church. Really excellent, excellent job. And you know, interestingly, I knew this moment was coming. I knew you were going to be reading, and it made me think of kind of a significant moment in my own life when I was around your age, Micah. It was, it was before, you know, the movement towards organic foods and before... Um, grass-fed beef and chickens had Facebook post profiles, you know, and vacation homes and stuff. We, it was after church on Sunday. It was kind of a tradition. Most Sundays, my parents would treat our family to the drive through at Burger King. <laughs> and, you know, almost every time we would drive through, I would ask for one thing. One thing. Um, it was the king of all burgers. And does it even need to be mentioned? But I will, because some of you are giving me blank stares, which is a shame. It's the Whopper, folks. <laughs> The Whopper. With cheese, of course, because mama didn't raise no fool, right? It's got to have the cheese. And, you know, the thing was twice the size of my head at that time, and there was no way I could actually finish the whole thing. But, but for the Whopper, it had little to nothing to do with hunger, at least not for me. Okay, the Whopper, it was kind of like a status symbol. It symbolized to me everything of testosterone and manliness. Like when my dad sunk his teeth into his burger, that was like, my destiny before me, you know? But there was a problem with kind of my vision of, of how I saw the world. Every time we'd go through uh, the Burger King drive through I, of course, would ask for a Whopper with cheese, of course. And uh, my mom would say to me, not until you turn 12. When you turn 12, <laughs> you can have a Whopper, you know? And I thought, ah, oh. you know, she doesn't understand what this means to me. I probably didn't even understand all of what it meant to me. She just knew there was no way on earth that I was going to be able to finish this thing. Um, but even still, it was like clockwork. We'd, we'd hit the drive-thru at Burger King. I'd ask for a Whopper. She'd say, not yet. We'd hit the drive-thru. I'd ask for a Whopper with cheese. And, you know, she would say, not yet. And then finally, the day came, right? I'd arrived as a human being. I had turned 12. No one could tell me I couldn't have a Whopper anymore. So there I was with my prize, slathered in American cheese, this beautiful Whopper. Now, some traditions have really thoughtful coming-of-age ceremonies like bar mitzvahs or rumspringa, you know, but I had the Whopper ceremony, and it sounds depressing to say out loud, doesn't it? Um, I'm almost positive that no one in my family remembers that day, but I'll never forget it, because on that day, I finally, I finally had the symbol of manhood in my hands, you know? Now, of course, I didn't finish it, um, but that had nothing to do with anything. I had tasted and seen that the Whopper was good, <clears throat> and everybody in middle school was going to know about it, right? 
And as funny as, as you, we've all got these kind of moments when we look back on our childhood, but the reality is, is that a lot of life is like Whopper ceremonies. <laughs> and it's ridiculous to think of how much, how much weight I gave to the sim- symbolic nature of a burger, but all of childhood, you, you probably remember, and those of you who are children here, you know, it's like you just want to grow up. You're waiting for that next stage. You just want to be taller. You want, you want to have more responsibility. You want to be seen as somebody, not just somebody's kid, you know? You want to be someday a man and a woman, not just a child. And you have all these concepts in your mind that you can finally arrive as soon as you become an adult. But for the adults in the room and children, you need to understand this too. When you become an adult, that doesn't go away. <laughs> you just have new social status symbols, new, new accomplishes, accomplishments that need to be done. And so, for example, when you graduate college, you don't want to just be seen as a college graduate. You want to be seen as now a professional. When you get a job, you don't want to just be an employee, but there's a day that comes where you want to be a boss and then the boss and then the CEO. It's like... We as people are infatuated with our, with our social status. Your social status is how you rank among everybody else in society, how you rank among everybody else in society. And often that's like family, coworkers, friends. Um, and we have a couple different markers in how we figure out where we rank. You know, it could be wealth, it could be power, influence, age. But when we seek to understand how we fit into this fabric of society, nobody wants to just know where they are. Oh, that's where I am. Perfect. Great. I'm good. Um, No, we want to know that you're great. Or if we think about this this broader framework of of our social status, we want to know we're greater than someone else, right? That somehow we have a higher status. And if we've been given certain talents and the circumstances are right, we would love to be the greatest, above everyone else, the supreme status. Now, why is this kind of a part of who we are as human beings? It's kind of intuitive, really. When you notice the difference between kind of having the diamond status and the copper (laughs) status of anything, whether it be, you know, Delta or Visa or Hilton, with the diamond status, what do you get? More perks, more perks. The higher the status, more, the more perks you get. And the higher status in life, we think, okay, more job options, more dating options, more respect, more prestige, more happiness, or so we're told. And we've, we kind of have all these different status symbols, more than just the Whopper compared to the Whopper Junior, because, I mean, come on, it's the Whopper Junior, right? We have all these different status symbols to kind of mark out where we fit in the structure. You know, for example... With the rise of smartphones, smartwatches, and really time being available in more walls than ever, did you know that there is continuing to be a rise in luxury watches? They can do less, but why? Why is that? Because a Rolex tells you more than the time. It tells everybody around you that you're the kind of person who can own a Rolex, right? It has this element about it that it demands respect. It's a status symbol. And I don't mean to dismiss Rolexes. You know, if you ever want to gift your pastor one, that's totally, (laughs) that sounds awful. I really don't mean that, okay, if this is your first time. Like, oh my goodness, church is right, everybody was right about church. Um, Look, another example, another example is, is the very, very daunting reality about how skin color has been manipulated to communicate status. You think about proximate, both geographically as well as temporally, the reality and the horrendous 
oppression of Jim Crow laws that communicated throughout history that someone who had black skin was of a lower status than someone who had white skin. That's what these laws were meant to communicate. A person with white skin could use the nice water fountains in the front because they were higher status, but someone with a black skin had to go to the back of the room with some water fountain that barely spurted out anything. Why is that? It was a communication of status. There's more going on there, but at least status. Simultaneously, in many Asian cultures, there are skin whitening products that you can find. Why is that? Because historically, those who worked in the fields who were lower class were kissed by the sun. And if you had whiter skin, that means you were upper class. So it communicates a level of status. These skin whitening products are still for sale. Now, in the United States, you've got this weird phenomenon called tanning, okay? And if you're one of those, I've been there, okay? So I share your shame. Um, you know, tanning, what is this? Well, tanning, it communicates, and having tanned skin that you've intentionally cultivated, it communicates luxury, luxury. This is why, like, almost every real housewives of, like, New Jersey or California have, like, this orangish color tan skin because it's communicating luxury. Somehow you have disposable income to spend hours out of your week in this machine that darkens your skin, you know, this tannish, orangish color, or you have the disposable income to go to the beach, you know, it's a status symbol that, that we still unconsciously are navigating. And this chase for status, whether we realize it or not, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Interacting with every aspect of our lives. And what do we get in return for this incessant chasing after status? We get in return more and more stress. Stress. You're stressed out because you're gonna, you, you feel like you might get left out or get left behind. You're stressed out, you know, because those genes you're hoping will just fit the right way so that they communicate you're part of a particular status group, you know, or you're stressed out that you might be found out or fired or unfriended. And all of this anxiety begins to build up. You know, one example of this is if you graduate high school or you graduate college and you graduate with a group of peers... And suddenly, a group, a subgroup in that group of peers gets a certain wage. Maybe it's 50000 or they even go to like six figures. But your wage doesn't match that. Even though you stay in your same status, since they've increased, you feel left behind. It's this sense of like, everybody else is increasing and I'm not. And that can feel humiliating. That can feel, this is the feeling part. We're using an F word here. <laughs> the feelings, you know, this, this can feel humiliating. And the other aspect of that is if you drop status because you lose a job, you're struggling to pay your bills, that can feel humiliating. You know, one company in Australia, they've capitalized on this idea. The title of their company is, is pretty fascinating, the name. It's Status Anxiety. <laughs> their message is very clear. If you own our products, those who are in your social circle will feel like they've been left behind and you've jumped up to the next status, and it'll make them anxious. You know, they've got a very particular marketing strategy, don't they? Um, and here's the deal. Amidst all of this, and so much of this is truly subconscious, that we don't even realize we're doing it. But when we make what is so implicitly true of our lives explicit in this moment, we all know that this isn't a good way to live. The striving after status, the stress that coincides with it. And so often I have found myself unwittingly, unwittingly following this script, having that become the defining marker in how it navigates my speech, my relationships, and my engagement in my community and my work. 
And I know this is a factor in each of our lives. And you know what happens when we become slaves to status? It forces us to do things we thought we would never do, like to get in unheard of debt so that we can still present ourselves as still maintaining a particular status in life or presenting that we've moved up in the world when in reality we've just put it on a credit card. Another way that this slave to, be, to status destroys us is it begins to destroy our relationships. This is, the, this is one of the key elements where gossip comes from because you begin to destroy someone else's status to make you look better, to raise you up. It's how whole communities get divided in the very makeup of a city because certain people of certain status shouldn't mix with certain people of other status and we design a whole city that separates them. And over time, when you become a slave to status, all of your standards become compromised. It's a terrible way to live. And what we find this morning in Scripture is that the gospel says we don't have to live that way. And Jesus, he presents to us a pretty radical alternative. It's counterintuitive, but it's absolutely crucial to what it means to follow him, to follow him. If you're new with us, we've been walking through Matthew's account of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Matthew walked and talked with Jesus. He experienced Jesus call him and to follow him. He walked with him for a few years, saw him die, and even experienced the resurrected Jesus. And he wants us to know him for who he is that he's not just a really smart rabbi, but he was Lord and Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. This cosmic king promised, finally come. And the way that Jesus organizes the world, navigates relationships, is unlike any other system of government in the world. It feels upside down. And so over the next couple weeks, we're gonna continue to look at this nuanced understanding of what it means to be a servant to this king, what it means to follow this king. And what we see starting off this morning from Jesus is that in all of our chasing after status and all of our longing to move up the ladder, true greatness embraces humiliation. True greatness embraces humiliation. And as we walk through our passage this morning, we're going to see what Jesus means by this, how we embrace humiliation as followers of Jesus, and where on earth we get the confidence to actually do it. Okay, so if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18. If you are using one of our community Bibles, it's on page number 823. Matthew 18, verse 1. You know, <clears throat> right off the bat, we come to a question that's all about status. All about status. And it rolls off the tongue of the apostles here in verse 1 when they say, Who is the greatest... This is in comparison. How do I fit within the broader society? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In other words, who's on top? And this feels like a question out of nowhere unless we understand the context, okay? What, it, what's, what caused this question to kind of bubble to the surface? If you look back, Matthew has already found himself in the limelight frequently. In Matthew chapter 10, when all the apostles, the 12 apostles are mentioned, Matthew is mentioned first. He is the first among equals. Then you get to Matthew chapter 16. And who, who is it that confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Peter. And Jesus says, ah, oh, the Heavenly Father revealed that to you, Peter. And then he even goes on to describe how Peter has a unique role in the foundation of the church. And then in Matthew 17, Jesus singles out Peter, James, and John and brings them up the mountain and transfigure, is transfigured before them while the other nine apostles are still down with the crowd. 
And all of this starts to come to a head with this question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All these grown men who are bickering about status. And we can't look down on them because we do this too, right? Because listen, wherever you're passionate, that's where you're most passionate about status. Because you can look at someone and say, well, I'd never, I'm not going to fight for a position there, but if you're passionate about your work, you're going to want the next leg. You want the next ring up. If you're passionate about your family, there's an element of wanting to be the top in your family. If you're passionate about your hobby, you want to be the best guitarist in the world, you don't just want to be, you know, doing, there's this element where we all want to be on top somewhere, somewhere. And they're bickering about this status, and out of this comes this question. Now, if you go to Mark's account, we get a little more context of what's happening here. Not contradiction, but Matthew helps bring to the broader context of how this question actually bubbled up. And what happens is, is the, the apostles, after all these things that are happening, start, they start fighting with each other. They're like, who do you think is the greatest? Well, I'm obviously the greatest. I mean, I went up the mountain and saw Jesus transfigured, yada, yada, and they start going in this. And Jesus says, hey, what are you guys, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> oh, you know, um, we're just thinking, I mean, you said you were going to die and all, and we're thinking like, how is the movement going to be sustained? It's like, well, somebody's got to lead, right? So who's, who's, who's the greatest? Like, if, if you were to say, Jesus, like, who's the greatest? Like, who, who would you say? I mean, and Jesus, like, catches them right in the midst of this, like, egotistical desire to grow in status. And, and his answer's astounding. He brings a child who's nearby. We don't know the name of this child, and that's important. We don't know the gender of that child, and that's important. And he puts this child right in the center of these 13 adult men, 12 apostles and Jesus, and he gives them a warning. This isn't a buddy-buddy chum moment. This is like Jesus is charging them. Listen here in verse 3. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn, unless you change your mind and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen to me, okay? Unless you change the whole way you're thinking about status right now, You'll never even be a part of what's happening and what I'm passionate about, what I'm seeking to do in the world. All, all, all of your thinking and your striving after increasing your status, it, it looks a lot more like the same kind of thinking that has been about destroying the world rather than restoring the world. And so instead, you need to become like this child. That begs a question. Like, what about this child should we em- emulate, you know? What about children, as you remember yourself as a child, or children in here, as you think about your own position, is Jesus highlighting over against adulthood. And it made me think about, you know, when I was a a child again, and, you know, I know you wish you could get your hands on those stonewashed jeans. Um, They'll come back around soon enough. Just wait. Just wait. But here's the deal. When I think about even my own childhood, I know Jesus isn't pointing to innocence, okay? I've got this devious smile. I actually had one of my teachers who told me, he's like, I, I, I never know, or told my parents, I never know whether Gabe's doing something bad or good. He just always smiles, always. <laughs> sometimes he's not doing good things. Sometimes he is, you know? Um, but here's the deal. We all remember first and second grade playground, don't we? Kids can be brutal, you know? I was brutal as a first and second grade, and they can be just as brutal as adults. I have two autistic nephews, 
And the things that come out of the mouths of kindergartners, first graders, and second graders can be really harsh and intense and painful. So it's not innocence. It's not some sort of renaissance understanding of children and nature is exemplary and when we were innocent little children and then we became these terrible adults. No, that's not what Jesus is highlighting here. So what is Jesus highlighting about children? He isn't saying even become like a child in every way. Because what do we see across the pages of Scripture? Grow up in your faith. Mature in your faith, right? So is Scripture contradictory? No. We need to understand what Jesus is saying here very specifically. Look here at verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So just to be clear, it's not like Jesus pulled one specific kid out of this audience of kids because he knew Johnny just exemplified, you know, the character trait of humility. And like, look at Johnny. He's putting his parents and his teachers to shame. No, no, that's not it. The apostles ask a question about status. And so Jesus answers them about status. And to understand this, we need to understand the status of children in the first century. You see, in the first century, there was no one of lower status than children. Even slaves became masters of children. There was no one of lower status than children. It's not like today where you've got your own market segment, you know, (laughs) sports leagues and even storage units full of toys. But in the first century, the most powerless members of society were children, and they either had no status or very low status, And it's not that children weren't loved, it's just they had no power, no influence, aside from what they received from their parents. And so what Jesus is saying is this, instead of chasing after being the boss so you can boss everyone around, choosing to chase after top status, I want you to voluntarily put yourself in the same status as children in the first century. In other words, if you're tired of the status quo, How many times have you heard that lately? Okay. If you're tired of the status quo, there's only one way to go for Jesus, and that's down if you're going to follow me. I want you to voluntarily enter the lowest of statuses in society and now find your identity there. Humiliate yourself like a child. Move yourself lower in the status realm and to become like a child. How our translation captures this, the English Standard Version, is whoever humbles himself. This verb, humbles, it always is talking about, it's one, it's an action, and two, it's always talking about status, always. You know, another place that this word shows up is when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Philippi in his letter called Philippians. And in chapter two, he begins to describe what God in Christ has done for us. And what does he say? Jesus who was equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a human servant and humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Do you understand this? Jesus, who has God-like status, instead now chooses a lower status, not just human form, but a human servant, and then goes so far as to die a criminal's death. He enters the very lowest rung of society, and this is greatness. This is greatness. Another place we see this illustrated is in John chapter 13. It's not explicitly used the same word, but it's illustrated nonetheless 
What happens here? Jesus is having a meal with the apostles, and he takes off his rabbi garb, and he puts on the garb of servants, and he gets on his hands and knees, and he begins to wash the apostles' feet. And this is scandalous because what Jesus is doing is communicating right here. He's just embraced the lowest of the low in society. This is the posture he's taken because the the disciples are like, hey, 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 Jesus, get up. You're our rabbi. This is like not just a slave's role, but the worst of the slave's role. Get up. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is a model for you and how actually the kingdom takes shape. This is what it means to follow me. You see, according to Jesus, true greatness, it embraces humiliation, humiliation. And I won't even go so far as to say it's not unafraid of decreasing in status if the time calls for it, but instead it proactively pursues the humiliation in choosing to now see yourself and serve out of the lowest status in society. This is the steep descent to greatness. And this is why, honestly, following Jesus, your life can never look the same once you meet him and begin to follow him. Because that type of understanding of greatness, that kind of understanding of living, doesn't fit nice and neat with the broader narrative of always trying to climb the ladder, always try to get yours, always try to communicate your status and demand respect. It is completely upside down and it demands trust in the person of Jesus to begin to follow him into something that is so counterintuitive. True greatness embraces humiliation. But that begs the question, how on earth do we do this? (laughs) There's a lot of different narratives on how to do this, but how do we do this? How do we embrace humiliation? And I'm going to say something that even struck me when I first wrote it down, but I think it's capturing the essence here is it's not in trying to be more humble. Not in how we often think chasing after humility looks. How do we often think chasing after humility looks? We think It involves you in a journal sitting there and overly introspectively sitting there thinking about yourself, thinking about how you can be more humble. And and then humility becomes elusive, doesn't it? Because as soon as you think, oh, I might be becoming humble, then you become arrogant about how you're becoming humble. And even, here's the other thing, even when you're trying to like root pride out of your life, so subtly, in the back of your mind, in the smallest of whispers, You hear this, well, at least I'm trying to root pride out of my life. That's better than most people, right? And humility feels like it's a grasping after the wind. C.S. Lewis was so brilliant when he said that humility, true humility, isn't about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. It's about this freedom of self-forgetfulness. And so think about that question again. How do we embrace humiliation? Look at verse 5. I think Jesus answers the question this way that's going on even in the apostle's mind when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. How do we embrace humiliation? By embracing the humiliated. Those who are on the lowest rung of society. You see, true humility is always social. Always People who long to follow Jesus all by their lonesome can never be humble, ever, because it demands community. It demands society. It demands to actually pursue the lowest rung of society. True humility 
is social, not merely individualistically introspective. It's a focus on the other, forgetting about fighting or trying to maintain your status, and instead being willing to even humiliate yourself or do what some might consider foolish because you're embracing those who are on the lowest social status. In the first century, there was no lower status than children. And Jesus says true greatness embraces humiliation by embracing the humiliated and seeing yourself through that lens. I mean, this makes sense of even what we see later from Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Jesus models this when we read, then children were brought to him, Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples, they rebuked the people. These are the lowest of the low. Don't bring these to our rabbi. And Jesus said, but let the little children come to me. and Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. You see, Jesus is inviting us to a new way of living, a new way of seeing. According to the world, those who have little to no status in society simultaneously have little to no value. Where they stand in their status communicates their value, but not so with Jesus. Instead, he calls us to radically flip the pyramid and say, no matter where you find yourself in the stratification, you are someone who's made in the image of God and you have indelible value equal to all the rest. And listen, I hope you know that when Jesus is emphasizing children It's here because of their low status in the first century, and it taps into a broader principle that we need to understand. We need to grasp this, or we're going to miss how this is so crucial to our call today as followers of Jesus. He is simultaneously pointing us that the call to embrace all people now, regardless of their age, who are on the lowest rung of their social status in our society. This is a broader principle. He's highlighting children who are the example of this, but the same could be true unless you become like an immigrant, unless you become like a refugee and you embrace such immigrants and you embrace such refugee. This is pretty radical. You need to understand how this hit the apostles at this moment. It totally flew and blew against all their social structures that they had thought of before. So, with all of that, (laughs) that should lead each and every one of us to now ask a broader question, who are the humiliated in my life? Who are the outcasts, the often overlooked, the tread upon in my social circles? Chances are good they're not going to have extra royal tickets for you come Thursday night, and they invite you to go to a game for free. Chances are good they're not going to have the political sway to get you a new job or a better job. Chances are good that you're not going to be able to drop their name in a conversation and raise your social standing. Who are the humiliated in your life? Our global church partner, Praya Kirke, here at the downtown campus, it's a church plant in East Berlin, Germany. They have simultaneously heard the call to follow Jesus as a call to receive Syrian refugees. And if you think the conversation around Syria and refugees is an intense conversation in the States, it is on par, if not more intense, in Germany, where in Berlin, there are over 100,000 Syrian refugees alone. Projekt Kirke, in their call to, to, to receive them, the way they've done that is they first entered into the camps and served and listened and have been served 
by the refugees. And in the process, they've invited them to church. And over the past six months, five, and they're made up of Syrian, Iranian, and Afghani refugees are now attending the church. One is on the cusp of giving his life to Christ. And I hope you hear that as one a charge to be praying for our sisters and brothers who are in Berlin who are seeking to receive those who are on the lowest rung of their social status in that particular city, as well as a charge to us as to what that might look like for us, as to who those are. And so if you come back stateside for a minute, ask that question afresh. Be praying, God, who are the humiliated in my social circles? Who are the ones that I need to be mindful of? And then what does it look like for you to embrace them? I mean, does that mean you're volunteering at Crossroads Academy here downtown over your lunch hour working with children who desperately need mentors to understand what it means to now re-engage the workforce when they become older and see the gifts that God has given them? Because another adult person has said, God has clearly and very positively designed you for contribution. Does it look like maybe serving with Mission Adelante, one of our ministry partners, and coming alongside of immigrants, teaching English a second language? Does it look like coming alongside of refugee families here in Kansas City, helping navigate the complexity of the systems that are Kansas City, that you know and remember the first time you moved here, if you've ever moved anywhere, and now imagine that moving into a whole nother nation? What does that look like for your posture at work? Who are the humiliated at work? The people that are constantly bickered or the ones that are made jokes about, how does that transform how you engage your nine to five and those you engage with there? I'm not sure what it looks like for you, but I do know one thing. It's going to cost you something. And because here's the deal. I'm not the naive optimist. He says, if you just do this, everything's going to be great and easy. Not quite. I mean, we're supposed to carry our cross and everything and follow Jesus. But first, I do want to say that embracing those of lower status, if you are one of higher status, if you have that privilege, it comes with its own perks as well. When you embrace, here's the deal. In our society, we value certain things. And those who are on the lowest status in society are often overlooked because the culture doesn't value what they have to offer. But everyone has something to offer. And when you engage in relationship, you do get wonderful perks in relationship. Jesus is calling us to a new way to live, a better way to be in community. But it does come with a cost simultaneously. Vocationally, it may cost you that promotion. Why? Because you've associated yourself with the one person that everyone else gets annoyed with, that everyone else makes jokes about. And so when it comes time, your boss associates you with that person and says, well, I'm not going to hire them or I'm not going to promote them. It may, it may cost you socially. It may cause some relationships to end because you're doing life with people that some consider dangerous or some consider worthless. It may cost you financially because those extra hours you would have spent in overtime, you're now engaging in relationships. Or it may cost you financially as you're walking alongside of one another and you're receiving and giving and coming alongside of in the midst of, in the midst of crises. I mean, listen, work isn't the problem here. We're designed for work. It's part of God's mission. Nice things aren't the problem here. Quality products should be affirmed and not looked at with disdain, okay? 
And we're called to be kind and friendly to whomever we come across. But listen, true greatness embraces humiliation by embracing the humiliated. And it comes with a cost. Worthwhile, but a cost nonetheless. And there's one family here, and there are many families, let me be very clear, and many singles who exhibit this. But one family I wanted to hold up as, as an example who I think are living this out faithfully and exude this, this cost-benefit in doing this. I called them before so they knew this was coming. And they're actually, they go to our first service usually. But it's the Holland family. The Holland family. Jacob and Michelle, and you know, as many of you know them. Um, I knew them when it was just Jacob and Michelle. They're three girls and they were a full house with full hearts. And they felt God's call to engage orphans. Those who are often written off. There are so many people who actually age out of the system because no one takes them into their homes. And they felt this burden. And the one way it took shape at first was in foster respite care, respite foster care, where foster parents get exhausted, worn out. And so uh, Jacob and Michelle would say, let us take them for a weekend. Let us take them for a week. And let us give you a break and we'll walk through and love these children. Oftentimes they had severe special needs. Um, and that just requires a different level of energy. And then one day, they met a little boy. They met a little boy. His name was Edward, and now his name has been changed to Gabriel. But they met him, and um, at first it started off with foster care. And they got to know the mother. And the goal of this was for reunification, that this little boy would be with his mom. But over time, the signs came to point towards the reality that this little boy was not going to be reunified with his mom for various reasons. And instead of putting him back in the foster system, they instead felt God's call to now adopt and to take him into their family. Does that come with a cost? Yeah. That's another mouth to feed. That's more energy for Michelle when she's at home already with three girls. Now she adds a little boy. Okay, let's get very real. Don't be naive and paint this like beautiful picture. It's hard. There's frustrating moments. There's times where you lose your cool. And they asked me, please don't put us on a pedestal. I was like, wasn't planning on it. Nice. Um, <laughs> but here's the deal. They receive a lot from Gabriel, to be sure. But when you take someone else into your home, you got to put that... That, that project to renovate the bathroom on hold. You can't afford the same level of vehicle you could before you, now you have four kids. You, you, you're going to put that vacation potentially on hold or the vacation's going to look very different. There are costs, and they're very real costs, but there are so many benefits that come with that, and as we assess the weights and the balances, many of you may be even sitting here and thinking, okay, Gabe, this seems really daunting. If true greatness embraces humiliation and it takes shape in real relationships and embracing the humiliated, when you talk about refugees and orphans, like, how on, I don't think I can do this. And this is where we need to ask the question, where do we get this confidence from? And why should we do it in the first place? Where do we get the confidence to actually follow Jesus in this radical alternative to understanding status? And it comes in an understanding of the reward that Jesus promises right here in verse 5. What does he say again in verse 5? Whoever receives one such child in my name, what? Receives me. Receives me. Jesus tells us that when we embrace the humiliated ones, we embrace the humiliated one. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. At the foot of the cross, social standing is 
equal. We are all sinners broken and humiliated by our shame and scorn for our treason against God. And what does God do in the midst of all this? And this has become the scandal of the Christian faith. God becomes human. And not just that God becomes human, but how he becomes human. He becomes the littlest of the little, born in a backwoods barn in Bethlehem as a baby. He didn't come in the chariots of glory. He's almost overlooked by all of the world, except for maybe a few shepherds and a couple other folks that were considered outcasts. And that in of itself is scandal. But then he lives his life as a servant. That God became flesh and became flesh like this. The creator became created like this. This is humiliating. But it doesn't stop there because then even God dies. You see this. This is, what G- this is what the Apostle Paul is so astounded by. This is what brings him to his knees is that Jesus, who has godlike status, enters human-like status as a servant and even dies the death of a criminal, criminal, taking our penalty upon himself that we might be forgiven and that we might now, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, be seated at the right hand of God the Father with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and now have this un alterable status because we're found in Jesus. Regardless of where our hierarchy looks like in this global system, in Jesus, we are seated at the right hand of God the Father with Christ. And you've got, we've got to understand, this, this is why true greatness embraces humiliation. Because through the great descent of humiliation, it is there where Jesus embraces all of us, the humiliated ones by our sin and shame, that he is then exalted to the highest of places and he brings us with him, all who find their identity in Christ and find forgiveness in him. This is what we have. This is what he's modeled for us. This is what he's calling us to as his followers. Will you embrace humiliation? May you see yourselves as the humiliated ones and so embrace the humiliated ones. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I, <clears throat> I know so often I come to scripture and I, 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 because of my love for comfort, I want a good little nugget that I can journal about in the comfort of my home and do nothing with. And, and, and to be sure, even there the gospel is invading, but when we think about humility, it's not just another opportunity to think about myself. It's instead a call to action is what that is. It's a call to realize that no one is of higher status and we see ourselves in this lowest form of status and we leverage our privilege wherever we are in that social status for the care of those who are at the bottom, seeing ourselves there because of what the gospel's called us to. It's in this descent to greatness, God, we need faith. We've gotta trust you. Help us to trust you here because every fiber within our being wants to go the other way. Help us. May you send your helpers to us and may we receive the help with all humility that they offer to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.